Welcome to the Dunwoody Community Church Podcast. We are so glad you have chosen to listen in to one of our Sunday services, and we hope that you will be blessed by today's message. For more information about Dunwoody Community Church, please visit us at dunwoodychurch.org. That's dunwoodychurch.org. Welcome to the fourth of our seven marks of a disciple. You know we're in this series where we're talking about what does it look like to follow Christ? We talk a ton about discipleship and being disciples. What does that look like? What should disciples look like? What what would characterize their lives? And as I've said about all the others, none of these are going to surprise you. This week, the fourth mark we're doing is worship. That, That a follower of Christ is one who worships God. But this one actually is a bit different from the others, because if you've noticed, as I go through and and do each of these marks, I'm spending time trying to convince you that you should do it. We talk about prayer, I'm trying to convince you you should pray. We we talk about uh, the Bible reading, I'm trying to convince you that you should read the Bible. I don't have to spend any time convincing you that you should worship, because you are worshiping. You will worship. It, It is a fundamental reality of humanity. Now, I don't mean you'll sing songs to a deity. That's an expression of worship. I mean worship, what what the word actually means. Worship comes from our English word, worth. You worship the things that you think are worthy. You worship the things that give you worth. And this is a fundamental part of humanity. We need to feel like we have worth. If you've ever studied psychology or sociology or anything, you've seen those hierarchy of needs. At the very bottom is physical needs. You need food, you need water, you need protection from the elements, those physical things that you'll die without. But boy, right above that, there are the psychological needs that you have. You don't just need physical safety. You know, if it's minus 20 degrees out, you need to be warm. You need psychological safety. You need to feel safe. You need to feel secure. You need to feel significant. This is true across all of humanity, all cultures at all times. And if you've ever seen stories like, you know, they do documentaries about this, this group of people in Asia who routinely live to be 100 or this tribe in South America that, you know, the, the, uh, what's the life expectancy in America? Like late 70s, 80s, something like that. You know, their life expectancy is in the, the mid-90s. One of the common very common threads that run through there is that even when you are old in this society, you still have purpose. You still have meaning. You're still doing something that contributes to your family, to the the society at large, that the people who are in their 90s are watching children or they're preparing food, that they're doing something where they give back. We need to feel like we have significance. All of humanity everywhere needs to feel like we have purpose. And that ties into worship. That ties into where we get our worth. So Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, said this quote that I think sums it up really well. He says, whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, if I have that, then I know my life has meaning then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. If I have that, then that is your object of worship. We worship what gives us significance. We worship what tells us that our life has meaning. And so a disciple of Christ 
isn't just someone who worships because everybody worships. Everybody has something that they're invested in that they think, oh, this tells me that I have meaning. A follower of Christ, a disciple, worships God. We get our meaning from God. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 44. If you're using the Bibles that are under the seat in front of you, it's page 507. Isaiah 44, and just like all the other ones, wow, there's tons of passages that I could have picked to do this. But I like this passage because it not only talks about worshiping God, but it talks about the opposite. Because the opposite of worshiping God isn't atheism. It isn't not believing in God. Atheists all worship. They all have something that gives them their worth. It's not a deity. Maybe it's their minds. Maybe it's their work. Maybe it's their family. This is not about what you believe in. This is about what tells you you matter. The opposite of worshiping God in the scriptures is idolatry, worshiping something other than God. And so this passage will talk about both. It will talk about what it means to worship God, why we should worship him, and it'll talk about idolatry, why we should not worship idols, why we should not worship anything other than the Lord God. So read with me Isaiah chapter 44. We're going to read the whole chapter. But now listen, Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. This is what the Lord says. He who made you, he who formed you in the womb, and who will help you. Do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees beside flowing streams. Some will say, I belong to the Lord. Others will call themselves by the name of Jacob. Still others will write on their hand, the Lord's, and will take the name Israel. This is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let them foretell what will come. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God beside me? No, there's no other rock. I know not one. All who make idols are nothing and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They're ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit nothing? People who do so will be put to shame. Such craftsmen are only human beings. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and shame. The blacksmith takes a tool and works it with the coals. He shapes an idol with hammer and forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. A carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in human form, human form in all its glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cuts down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or he planted a pine and the rain made it grow. He used it as fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, ah, I'm warm, I see the fire. And from the rest, he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, save me, you are my god. They know nothing, they understand nothing. 
Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see, and their minds are closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Such a person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? Remember these things, Jacob, for you, Israel, are my servant. I have made you, you are my servant, Israel, and I will not forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing for joy, you heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, you earth beneath. Burst into song, you mountains, you forests and all the trees, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He displays his glory in Israel. This is what the Lord says, your redeemer who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord, the maker of all things, who stretches out the heavens, who spreads out the earth by myself, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense, who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited, of the towns of Judah, they shall be rebuilt, and of their ruin, I will restore them, who says to the watery deep, be dry and I will dry up your streams. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt. And of the temple, let its foundations be laid. So, why? Why is investing anything other than God with with your hope, with your, your desires, with your sense of worth, fulfillment, security, why is it foolish to put that in anything other than God? The first thing that God says in here is that we're foolish to trust in idols. And remember, I don't mean idol as the, you know, literal little God. I mean idol as in anything that you think makes you significant. Anything that you say like that quote, oh, if I've got that, then I'm okay. Why, do, why is it so foolish to invest in idols? And the first thing God says is because they're made by people. that They have no actual value or worth. We have to make them in order then to have them tell us that we are worth something. So he says in verse 10, who shapes a God and casts an idol? And he goes down and answers that. In verse 11, a craftsman. In verse 12, a blacksmith. In verse 13, a carpenter. All of these people have to come together and work to make an idol. We have to take something and invest it with worth so that it can say back to us, hey, you're worthy. Right, this is like me. Imagine I'm going to sell tables for a living. Okay, I'm going to sell tables for ten bucks, and so I go to each of you and I give you a ten dollar bill, and I say, "Please buy my table," and you give me a ten dollar bill, and I give you the table, and I go, "Look, look, I'm a good salesman. Look, I have worth. Look, I made ten dollars. I didn't make anything. How long is that business going to last?" But that's what Scripture says we are doing with these things, that that we take something. And again, for all of us, it may be different, right? It could be your career. It could be your wealth. It could be your possessions. It could be your strength. It could be your mind. It could be your spouse, your kids, whatever it is. We take something and we tell ourselves, oh, that has worth. That's important. That can tell me that I matter. So remember the movie Chariots of Fire, 
one of the guys, he's going to run the 100-yard dash, and they're asking about why he does it. Why does he train so hard and all these things? And his answer is, when that gun goes off, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. Because that's what he worshipped. He worshipped winning races. If he was fast enough, if he could beat the other guys, if he could win, then he mattered. It justified his existence. But if he didn't, then he didn't have purpose and meaning. Now, is that true? Does winning the 100-yard dash, who here has won an Olympic gold medal in the 100-yard dash? Raise those hands high. Let me see them. Right? Is he right? Is that where we find meaning and purpose and significance? Because if it is, we're all in trouble. Because nobody here has ever won a 100-yard dash and got an Olympic medal. Of course not. He just decided that. He decided that that is what was going to give his life meaning and purpose. He decided, if I can do that, then I matter. But there's no difference in me handing you 10 bucks and saying, here, buy my table for $10. Look, look, I sold the table. Look how, what a great job I'm doing. We have to give idols worth so that they then can come back to us and tell us we're worthy. If I say, oh, I, I matter, I'm significant, my life counts because I'm a good dad. Well, then what about Elizabeth? She's not a good dad. Does, that, does she not matter? What about people that aren't good dads? What about people that aren't even dads? I decide. Do you see, it, it's like this delusional circular thinking. I decide that I matter if I'm a good dad. Oh, look, I'm a good dad, I matter. We, we create this delusional circle of thinking when we invest anything that we have created with the power to tell us, you matter, you're important. God says, that's foolish. You just, it's just people who took something. The second thing God says about idols, anything other than him that we're gonna invest ourselves in and say, okay, you tell me that I matter. You tell me that my life has meaning is God says all those things are transitory. Look, if you will, back in verse in verse six and on down, God is challenging people and their idols to show that they actually have some power because they're, they're, they're not illusionary and transitory, to show that they're gonna last and they know what's going on. So God says, I am the Lord, you know, he lists himself out, I am the first and the last. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people. Isaiah's writing about 700 BC. God created the Israelite nation when Moses took them out of Egypt, almost 800 years before this. God's saying, hey, 800 years ago, I did something. Were you around then? I can tell you what's gonna happen in the future. Can your idols tell you that? Tell us what is yet to come. Let them foretell what will be to come. Don't tremble, don't be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? God says, I have been around since the very beginning and I will be here forever. I know the end from the beginning. I know what's gonna happen and I can tell it to you. Can your idol do that? Because if it can't, then it's not gonna be able to save you. If you have invested your children with, it's your children, if your children do well in school, if your children do well in the jobs, whatever it is, if you have invested your kids, if you're worshiping them, again, not meaning you're singing songs to them on Sunday, meaning they give you your worth, they tell you, yep, your life matters, you've done a good job. 
How are your kids going to give you security in the future? They don't know what's going to happen. How's your job going to protect you? It doesn't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to happen. Nobody knows what's going to happen tomorrow except him. And look at the end. Look at the last few verses, verse 26 and on down. This is God talking, God talking about himself. So I, I carry out the words of his servants. He fulfills the predictions of his messengers. Who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited. Of the towns of Judah, they'll be rebuilt. Of the ruin, I'll restore them. Flip on over. Who says of Cyrus, he's my shepherd. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt. Let the temple foundations be laid. This is 700 BC. He's in Jerusalem. It's not a ruin. The towns of Judah are fine. The Assyrians invaded 10 or 20 years ago and got their butts kicked. It is the only people in history who defeated the Assyrians and the Assyrians never came back. Like they were 50 and 0 up until they took on Judah. They came down and God slaughtered them. Like uh, their army was over 200,000 people, we're told, and 90% of them, they woke up one morning and 90% were dead. And oh, guess what? They left and decided to go somewhere else. Go find a different God to take on. It's the only nation that ever did that. Judah, the country that Isaiah is prophesying in, in Jerusalem, they are riding high. Jerusalem, it is the biggest, baddest city for hundreds of miles in any direction. And God is saying, he's doing exactly what he said. I'm telling you the future. One day, Jerusalem will be rebuilt. What do you mean rebuilt? It is built. One day the temple will be restored. What are you talking about? There's the temple right there on the mount. In 700 BC, nothing that Isaiah says in these verses makes any sense at all. It will be 75 to 80 years before Babylon, which is just a province of Assyria and not even the most important one, declares its independence and destroys the Assyrian Empire. It'll be 90 years after that till the Babylonians come to Judah and they don't lose. They take it over and they make Judah a province of Babylon. It'll be another 25 years after that, right? So we're at like 125 years now that the Babylonians will get sick of them and they will level Jerusalem and they will so destroy the temple that they don't even leave the foundation stones in the ground. They tear the, they don't leave one block on top of another in that city. They level it. That's around 577, 578, almost 125 years after Isaiah. And then in the 530s, Cyrus the Great, the king of Persia, will conquer Babylon. And he will send the captive Jews back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. And in 700 AD, God names him Cyrus. Cyrus won't be born for 100 years. God says, can your idols do this? And he tells them things. He doesn't tell them the next thing that's going to happen or the thing after that. Or the th He doesn't tell them about the Babylonians taking over, the Babylonians taking Judah, the Babylonians destroying Israel and destroying the temple. He tells them about the fourth thing. The Persians taking over the Babylonians and sending them back. When they read this, no one who read this could understand it. Their kids couldn't understand it. Their grandkids couldn't understand it. Their great-grandkids understand it. This doesn't happen until the 530s, 170-some-odd years after Isaiah writes it. 
it's only us. It's only the people a couple hundred years later who can read this and go, oh my gosh, Cyrus, he named him by name a hundred years before he was even born. God says, can your idols do that? Can they tell you what will happen 200 years from now? Because if they can't, then they can't protect you. If you have invested your children with the power to tell you you matter, or with the 100-yard dash with the power to tell you you matter, none of them can tell you what's going to happen two minutes from now. And God says, great, if your idols are so great, then tell us about tomorrow, because I can tell you about ages from now. And let's face it, anything other than God that, that we let tell us we matter it ain't going to last. If it's your kids, they're going to grow up and go away. If it's your job, let's face it, the day is coming when you're not going to have that job. Somebody else is coming up behind you. If it's your strength, <laughs> we, we all know as we grow older, we are losing a step every few years. If it's your great mind and your intelligence, yeah, I got bad news. 85-year-old you will not be as quick as 25-year-old you. That, that is the reality of the world. Anything we say, you, you tell me I matter. This guy who's going to run the 100-yard dash, he wins it that year, let's say. What about next year? Does he win it again? What about the year after that? What about next year when somebody breaks his record? What about the year after that when somebody obliterates it? If we let anything other than God tell us we matter, then we are in trouble because it will not last and it cannot tell us the future. And then finally, God tells us about why, why is this so foolish? Look at this story he tells, um, verses 14 on down. Guy goes out, gets a, gets a tree, right? Let's say it's a 10-foot tree, and he chops it in half, and half of it he turns into firewood, and half of it he sends off to get shaped into an idol. What happens to that part of the tree called firewood? It gets burned up. You know what that means? That means wood is flammable. You know what that means for the other half of the tree? It means it's flammable. His idol is flammable because that's not what it's for. When you take wood, in the case of this story, and you invest it with this power to, to save, tell, save me, tell me what's gonna happen, fix my problems, tell me I matter. When you do that to a piece of wood, then you don't have it to use the way it's supposed to be used. Wood is good, God made wood. Trees grow because God made trees. They are supposed to be used to burn and keep you warm. They're supposed to be used to help you cook your food. That's what trees are for. If you take that tree and you turn it into an idol, then boy, you better hope you don't get cold because you can't burn your idol. You can't use your idol to cook your food. We take these good gifts that God has given us and we use them for things that God never intended and it ruins them. We can't, I've got five feet of wood that I could use for firewood, that's what it's for, but I can't because I've invested it with the power to tell me that I matter and I'm significant. And I can't burn what makes me significant. I, I have to send it off and dress it up and make it look good. God says, what are you thinking? Like wood is good when you burn it and cook on it and it keeps you warm. But if you give it the power,
power to tell you you matter, then you've ruined it because you can't use it now for what it's for. We all know people that worship their kids. Again, I don't mean worship by singing songs to on Sunday. I I mean this sense of worship. They have invested in their children the ability to tell them they matter. They're saying to themselves, as long as my kids are successful, then I matter as a person. As long as my kids get a good education, as long as my kids do well in school, as long as my kids do this or kids do that, then I matter. I have significance. I have security. What happens to those families? They destroy their children or they destroy the relationship. It's one of the two. If you make your children Whatever your children do, and again, remember, it's like me giving you $10. I'm putting that into them. It's not actually there. My kids don't actually have the power to tell me I matter, but I invest them with it. I worship them. I make them an idol. Then what's going to happen when they fail me? When they don't get the grade that I need them to get? When they don't get the job that I need them to get? I destroy my children or I destroy our relationship? And I bet you can think of people that you know have done that. When we take God's good gifts to us, wealth, possessions, family, relationships, all these good things, we take these good things and we turn them into idols. We tell them, you, you tell me I matter. You tell me I'm important, that my life has meaning. We destroy them. We don't use them for what they actually are for. So God's verdict at the end of this, in verse 20, such a person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? You're eating ashes. You think you're eating something. You will, ashes will not keep you alive. You're deluded, God says. It's a lie. If you give anything the power to tell you you matter other than God, it's a lie. If we are disciples of Christ, then we worship God alone. Why? Well, it's some of the first things out of his mouth in, verse, in chapter 44, verses two. This is what the Lord says. He who made you, who formed you in the womb, God made us. We don't make him. I can make some talent an idol. I can make my family an idol. I can make career an idol. I can make wealth and possessions idols. I don't make God. God makes me. He says it again in verse 24. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord, the maker of all things, who stretches out the heavens, who spreads out the earth by himself. God is the creator of everything. God already has worth. As he said, I am the beginning and I am the end. I don't need to give God worth to tell me I matter. He already has it. He made everything. He can tell me. He can share his worth with me. I don't got to give God $10 for God to buy my table and make me feel good about being a great salesman. God can just buy my table. He already has worth in himself. Second, God tells us that he is not transitory. We talked about that just a minute ago. That he knows the end from the beginning. He knows Cyrus. That half the wood that burns, that other half, it's going to burn too. Nothing God says is going to burn he knows it all. He understands it all. He sees it all. He's telling us things that happen long into the future that no one reading Isaiah would have understood for at least 200 years. God says, I am not transitory. And thirdly, we worship God because he's good. I mean, listen to the things he says at the beginning. I will help you. Do not be afraid. 
Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. I will pour water on a thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I'll pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They'll spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. God is Good. Look at what he goes on to say in verses 21 and 22 after he's just finished this whole long thing about how totally worthless idols are. How you just are an idiot. You are deceived. You're eating ashes. If you give anything the power to tell you you matter, then this is what God says. This is his response to our complete stupidity. Remember these things, Jacob, for you, Israel, are my servant. I have made you. You are my servant. Israel, I will not forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like a morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Do you hear the tenses of all those? They're all past tense. I have made you. I have swept away your offenses. I have swept away your sin. I have redeemed you. We are complete and utter idiots. We give a piece of wood the power to tell us that our lives matter. And God comes along and points it out to us. And what do you think he's going to do next? I mean, seriously, what would I do with my kids, right, if they've just done this incredibly boneheaded thing? I mean, the next thing to say is, so get it right. Straighten up. Come on, I've told you what to do. Go out and do it. What does God say to his people after they have just been complete? complete idiots, rejected him, taken his power, his authority, the things that, that should, they should give him, their worship, and they've given it to a block of wood. And God says, you need to remember what I told you, son, because you're my servant, and I will never forget you. I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. All that foolishness, it's gone. I've swept it away. I've already redeemed you. So come back. That's, that, that is all over the scriptures. We don't have to be good to get God to love us. God loves us. So be good. God never comes to us and says what I would say, which is, wow, that was stupid. <laughs> Make you a deal. Set it right. Return to me and we'll talk. We'll talk about me getting rid of your offenses. God never says that. He says, I love you. You're mine. I made you. I have swept away your sin. It's gone. I've redeemed you. We're fine. Come back. And over and over again, God pleads with us, come back. He's already redeemed us. He's already saved us. He's already taken care of our sin. Even though we do exactly what he's just said. We say to our careers, Tell me I'm important. We say to our family, you, tell me I'm important. Show me that I matter. We say to our possessions, look, I have all these things. That gives my life meaning. We all know what happens if we do that. If you make your possessions the meaning for your life, then what do you got to do? Well, you got to guard those possessions. Because if you don't have them, then you don't have meaning anymore. Why, when the stock market crashes, do people jump out of windows? because they made their wealth and their careers their gods. They worshiped that. And when their God died, then what else were they gonna do? They had no purpose, they had no meaning, they had nothing to tell you, you matter. Your life is important. So it wasn't, and they took a dive out a window. God 
looks at all of our stupidity and says, I've taken care of it. Please come back. So let me ask you, like, this is a serious question. This is important. What do you worship? Again, I don't mean who do you sing songs to on Sunday morning. I mean, really, truly, in your heart of hearts, what do you have to have? What do you say in your heart of hearts? Oh, if I've got that, I'm okay. Or flip it around. What do you say inside in your heart of hearts? You don't tell other people this. You certainly don't come in on Sunday morning, shape someone's hand and say, hey, I'm worshiping my career. How about you? What, what, what do you say to yourself? If I lose that, I'm dead. If I lose that, I've got nothing. Because that's what you worship. That, that's where you've put your security. That's what's telling you you matter. And it won't last. It will betray you sooner or later. You are giving up the good that you could have had from that career, family, whatever it is. That's God's good gift to you. And you could have all that good. You're giving that up when you invest it as an idol. Like, like seriously, what do you worship in this sense? What do you have to have Like, ask yourself that. I'm gonna pray and ask God to talk to us about that. If it is anything, if there's anything in there other than the Lord Jesus Christ, then you need to repent. You need to tell him, I'm doing this and I need you to help me stop because I know this is no different than cutting down a tree and shaping half of it into a little statue and believing that wood can save me. If there's if you, if you look at yourself honestly and you say, yeah, I am, I'm worshiping my career. I'm worshiping my wealth, I'm worshiping my possessions, I'm worshiping my family. Like, those are the, that's what matters to me. That has to tell me I matter, not God. Then repent, because it is going to bite you in the end. It will not save you. Tell God, I'm doing this, I'm sorry. Help me to stop, because you hear what he says. You're mine. I've redeemed you. I've taken care of all that. You just need to come back to me. So, so do that. We're going to end, as we always do, by taking communion. But rather than me like you know, praying and ending the sermon and then transition, we're going to use the communion time as part of this. Because communion, this little meal, this bread in this cup, it reminds us that our God died for us. Your idols will never die for you. They'll ask you to die for them. Your career will not die for you, but it will most certainly ask you to die for it at some point. It will ask you to give up everything else for it. And the true God gives up everything for us. That's what this reminds us of. So I'm gonna pray over us, and then when I'm done, I just want you to get up, There's tables on either side. There's a table down here. If you need gluten-free, it's on your right side as you come to this one right here near me. I want you to come down, get the bread, get the cup. Don't, Don't take it, don't eat it. Bring it back to your seat and we'll take it together. But while you are standing there in that line, while you are standing there picking up the bread that represents the body of Christ, the cup that represents the blood, that the true God died for you, ask yourself, ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, what do I really worship? Is it you? Is it really you that tells me I matter? If I lost everything else, am I still okay? Because you say I matter. You say you love me. You say you have redeemed me. Like, ask yourself that and have the courage to face the answer. 
Because for most of us, in some way, shape, or form, the answer is no. We are not relying solely on God. We are not worshiping only God. It is not only God that tells us we matter. Maybe he's in the mix. But it's career, it's wealth, it's family, it's status, it's power, it's strength, it's brains, it's, there's all these other things. Ask the Lord to show you and have the courage to see it when he does. And tell him, I'm sorry. Help me stop that. That is an idol. And I do not want to commit idolatry. So let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we, we confess we are idolaters. I mean, we don't chop down trees and make statues. But we take created things and we say to them, save me. Tell me I matter. Tell me I'm important. We, we invest things that you have created for our good. And instead of using them as we should, we worship them so that they tell us that, that we're okay and that our lives have worth and purpose and significance. Lord, we are sorry. We are sorry that we are idolaters. I pray for my brothers and sisters now. I pray for me. Lord, as we prepare ourselves for communion, as we get up, as we get in line, as we walk down and take the elements, Holy Spirit, speak to us. Give us the courage to, to look at this straight and to, to say, yep, I do that and here's how. Lord, give us the courage to see the truth. Speak to us, reveal the truth to us so that we can repent and believe the good news. The good news that you have already swept away our sin. You've already redeemed us. All we, we can come back. All we need to do is return. Jesus, be gracious to us. You know we're wimps. You know we're cowards. You know we're fickle. You know how easy it is for us to forget and to turn away from you you who, who we do not see to all the things around us that we do. Jesus, be gracious to us as we prepare ourselves to take communion. Show us. Show us the, the ways that we are idolaters. Give us the courage to face it and to turn away from it, to repent and to believe. We pray this in your name, Jesus, always, because you are our, our God, because you have died for us, because we are idiots who go off and do stupid things. And you do call us back over and over again because you do love us. We are yours. You have swept our sins away. They are gone. They are further than east is from the west. They are deeper than the deepest trench in the ocean. Thank you. We pray all these things in your name, Jesus, always. Amen.